If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to support the show, buy some of my books. I have a bunch of them, and most of them are free with Kindle Unlimited. Don't have Kindle Unlimited? No problem. They're all priced pretty cheap. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. Dead End I'm a driver for a ride-sharing service called Curbside. You've probably heard of Uber and Lyft. It's like that, just not as well-known. I make myself available for pickups on Friday and Saturday nights. Most of my calls are from drunkards who need a ride home from a bar. They aren't the most pleasant of passengers, but their money is as good as anyone else's. Most curbside drivers like to stick to their own neighborhoods, but I go wherever the calls take me. It was a Saturday night when I found myself in a moderate-sized town called Murray, which was popular for a strip of nightclubs in their downtown area. It was a busy night. Most women drivers prefer not to do the bar scene on weekends. Apparently, they get a lot of lewd, drunken men constantly trying to pick them up so they don't even bother. I don't have that problem. I'm a rather plump, extremely unattractive 40-something-year-old. Nobody is interested in me for those purposes. I had just dropped off my last customer and was on my way back to the downtown area for my next fare when I noticed the flashing red and blue lights behind me. I knew I wasn't speeding and hadn't run any stop signs, so I wasn't sure what the officer's beef was. I quickly pulled over and watched as a tall, husky silhouette approached my door. When the police officer stepped into my view, I nearly gasped. He had a long, slender, extremely pale face. The dark circles under his eyes were overshadowed by his black, bushy eyebrows. He reminded me of Lurch from the Adams family. Where are you headed tonight? His voice was unusually deep and creepy. Uh, I drive for curbside ride-sharing. I was on my way downtown from my next fare. He stared at me for the longest time. His eyes were unfriendly and bloodshot. I pulled you over to warn you. Warn me? There have been multiple murders in town tonight. My eyes widened. What? The ghoulish police officer bent down, discreetly looked around, and then slowly inched his face closer to mine. The bodies were drained of all their blood. I sat there frozen, unsure of how to respond. He gave me a sly grin and a subtle wink as he tipped his trooper's hat at me. 
Be careful out there tonight. The officer stood up. I expected him to walk back to his vehicle, but he didn't. He just stood there, watching me as he held that sinister grin. I waited a moment for him to say something, but words never materialized. He just continued standing there, staring. Uh, am I free to go? The officer waited several seconds before giving me a slight nod. I gazed into my side-view mirror as I sped away. The officer remained there, standing stoically, watching me. I quickly shuffled that entire odd encounter to the back of my mind and shifted my focus to my next fare. The caller had requested to be picked up a couple blocks from the heart of downtown in the Meat District. This was an unusual area to be getting a call at this time of the night, as the Meat District became a virtual ghost town after 8 o'clock. But as I mentioned, I go where the calls take me. I pulled my car up to the intersection that I was supposed to pick up my fare at. There was nobody there, so I put the vehicle in park and waited. I'd give them five minutes and then drive away. This happened sometimes. They could have changed their minds, or maybe I arrived sooner than they expected and they weren't ready yet. This particular area of the meatpacking district was void of streetlights. It was equivalent to sitting in a darkened alley. Up ahead I could see the steam rising from manhole covers and dissolving against the lights in the distance. But where I was, it was pitch black. After five minutes, I put my car in drive and was about to press down on the accelerator when the back door to my car was yanked open and a dark figure slid into the back seat. I gazed into the rearview mirror. I couldn't see the person well. They were wearing a black hooded sweatshirt and a hood was pulled up over their head shadowing their face. I asked the person for the address of their destination so I could type it into my GPS. He replied with a masculine, hoarse, and scratchy voice. Just drive. I'll tell you where to go. I did as the passenger requested. I expected his directions to take me to a more civilized area, but it was quite the opposite. Every turn he demanded took us down a longer, gloomier road. We were snaking our way far from town, and deeper into the shadowy outskirts of Murray. Turn left. I did as instructed, but my GPS wasn't keen as to where we were headed and began throwing a fit. Dead end ahead, dead end ahead. Turn around, turn around. Uh, this road appears to be a dead end. I know. A few seconds later, I brought the car to a halt as the asphalt of the road transformed into a cold, dried-up field. I was suspicious, to say the least, but I remained calm and all business. That will be twelve dollars, please. This made my passenger chuckle. I don't think you understand. It is you who will be paying me tonight. I heard the loud crack of a pocket knife being snapped open. How much money you got? Before I could even respond, the dark shadows within my vehicle erupted with dancing red and blue lights as a police car zoomed up behind us. 
I startled when I heard the deep, booming voice erupt from the exterior speakers of the squad car. Get out of the car slowly. I did so. My passenger did the same. We both stood gazing out at the looming silhouette of the intimidating police officer as he stared at us for an unusually long amount of time. Finally, the officer stepped forward into the light, and as I suspected, it was the lurch-like officer I had encountered earlier. I believe he had grown even paler since I had last seen him. I was shocked at what I heard him say. Go ahead. Do what you were going to do. My would-be thief of a passenger lowered the hood of his sweatshirt. He had a bulky build, but was just a pup. He couldn't have been more than 19 years old. He was fair-skinned with reddish-blonde hair. The young man seemed frightened and extremely confused when he realized that the officer was directing his statement at me, not him. He was even more baffled when he turned his gaze to me just in time to see me flash my razor-sharp fangs. I was a blur as I grabbed my unlucky passenger by the shoulders and shook him senseless before sinking my teeth into his corroded artery and slurping down that warm, fresh, young blood. I had half of the boy's body drained when the ghostly police officer appeared by my side. He grabbed the body from my clutches and produced fangs of his own. He sank his teeth deep into the dead boy's wrist and slurped up the rest of his luscious blood. As the officer dropped my pruned passenger to the ground, he wiped blood from his upper lip and turned his cold gaze to me. This is my town. Don't ever come back. I gave the chilling officer a sincere nod and was on my way. The Pill I'm a successful romance novelist. I'm not filthy rich, but I'm close enough. I've never been married, which makes me unique in my circle of writing friends. Most of them got married shortly after finishing college. Me, on the other hand, I've just never been able to find a man who can satisfy me. That's what I tell everyone, anyway. Most of my friends think I'm picky because I've never had a boyfriend for more than six months, and I tend to go through a lot of them. They probably all think I'm a slut, although they would never admit that to my face, but I'm not. Not really. The men I date are nothing more than fodder for my books. That's how I write. I date a man, I get to know him, in every conceivable way, and I use all those traits for the hero of my next romance novel. And it has worked. I'm most popular for the extensive character development of my lead male characters, but the truth is, I'm just writing about whoever my last boyfriend was. Honestly, I wouldn't know how to write a male lead in my books 
without using this tactic. And therein lies the problem. I'm in my late fifties now. My looks have gone downhill fast. In my younger days, getting a man to cling on to me long enough for me to thoroughly create my next leading man character was a breeze. But nowadays, not so much. Being a woman, it's not difficult to get laid. There's always a man around to satisfy that need if necessary, but to find someone to stay with me long enough for character development has proved rather difficult the past few years, and because of this I'm losing money fast. When I was in my prime, I released two or three books a year. Now, I'm lucky if I release one book every three years. My last book didn't even have a male character. It was called The Toucher. It revolved around a woman who was so self-absorbed that no man can gratify her more than she could gratify herself. It bombed. My readers don't want to read about a woman masturbating. They want to do the masturbating while they read about the exploits of my male character. I was desperate. My career was plummeting. If I didn't do something fast to change my luck, I was going to lose everything. I vented to my friend Abby, who also happens to be a romance novelist. I never disclosed my secret ingredient of writing my male characters to her, but I did confide in her that I was having a catastrophic case of writer's block. I remember the sly expression she held as she spoke. I know the cure. I was expecting her to suggest I get a good night's sleep, meditate, do yoga, and bullshit like that. But she didn't. Instead, she held up a small, crystal blue pill. I was slightly puzzled and I spoke discreetly. Is that speed? She let out a hearty laugh. No, it's the cure for writer's block. I take one of these before I start a new book. It does the rest. What is it? She scribbled down a phone number on a napkin and handed it to me. If you're truly interested, call this number. I didn't hesitate. I called the number before I left her driveway. A man with an astonishingly deep voice answered. Yes. I'm calling for some pills? For writer's block? 611 Chestnut Drive, 10 o'clock sharp. With that he hung up. I anxiously arrived at the address at 10 o'clock that night per his instructions. To say I was shocked at the location was an understatement. I was expecting to meet the man at an abandoned factory with grime smeared on the walls and steam emanating from broken pipes. Instead, I stood at the entrance of a pizza place. And not just any pizza place, it was one of those pizza places that was tailored specifically for kids. The sign on the door said they were closed and all the lights inside were off. I knocked on the door. 
Within a few minutes, a man in a pinstripe suit and spiked bleach-blonde hair opened the door. He held a friendly smile that didn't fit with his cavernous voice. Rider's block. I nodded and he ushered me into the pizza establishment. He flipped on a few lights which revealed the bright, jolly-colored decor. Various animatronic animals were featured throughout the building, along with colorful indoor slides and a medley of video games. He directed me to a counter by the cash register and presented a small cellophane bag that housed the same kind of crystal blue pill Abby had shown me. Take this before you start writing. He started to hand me the bag and then came to a halt. Be forewarned, the pill has some temporary side effects. Such as? Shortly after taking the pill, you will black out. You should awaken within six hours, and when you do so, you'll find your work to be complete. So far, this didn't sound so bad. Anything else? He nodded. The pill will tap into your creative mind, but in doing so will also temporarily release a deep, dark side of you that you may not even know exists. I was curious. Like what? I'm afraid I can't help you there. Everyone has a different dark side. I contemplated his word of caution for approximately one full second before I exchanged a wad of cash for the magic pill. I went home, sat in front of my computer, and swallowed down the pill with a swig of red wine. The effect the man spoke of was almost instantaneous, but I didn't black out, not fully. I went into kind of a dream state. I felt as though I were floating. I could see flashes of letters appearing before my eyes. My mind was echoing with laughter and moans of pleasure. I could feel my fingers dancing across a keyboard at the speed of light. Occasionally, it felt like I was chopping meat and mopping. It was a swirl of oddities, but it all felt so right. When I woke up, I peered over at the clock. It was indeed six hours later, and there before me was the outline to my next book. I started reading it, or should I say I tore through it? Oh my god. Yes! 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 The outline was unbelievable. It was the most gripping, intriguing, provocative, erotic, captivating thing I had ever written in my entire life. I started laughing. I stood up and began dancing around in a jubilant stupor. I froze when I saw the drops of blood on the floor. Next to the droplets of blood were large, black garbage bags filled with blood-stained rags. Alongside the bag was a blood-soaked mop and a metal bucket housing red water. What was all this? The answer to my question was stacked up against the wall. Two naked men chopped up into small sections. 
Each section of their body was carefully wrapped in clear plastic. Who these men were, I had no idea. But it was obvious that I killed them. And lucky for me, I did the after-murder cleanup while I was still in my blackout as well. I wouldn't have known where to begin otherwise. I downed a glass of wine before carefully placing the chopped up body parts into a suitcase. I took the suitcase and the bag of bloody cleaning rags to my car, drove to the next town, and dumped them all in a quiet lake in the woods. The next morning I drove directly to Abby's house. She greeted me at the door with a smile. Did it work? I nodded with a sly grin. You bet it did. She invited me in, and after a few drinks, I felt comfortable asking her a question about the pill. So, Abby, how long have you been taking these pills? Since my first book, I've been taking them for a long time. I was a little surprised. And you have no trouble living with it? She sat up and got a bit serious. Oh, you mean the dark side? She paused and closed her eyes while she pondered her thoughts before continuing. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I'm physically ill afterward, but I only do it every few months, so I manage. I was shocked. Abby was a good wife and had raised two wonderful kids. I wouldn't think she had this kind of a dark side in her. Then she went into the gory details. My dark side is strong. It has such a power over me after I take that pill. Sometimes, in the span of those six hours, I'm startled and disgusted at what I'm able to do. She took in a deep breath before she continued. I'll eat four, sometimes five, pies. I was silent for a moment. Pies? Yes, that's my dark side. I eat pie. I write great stories, and then I devour pies. I couldn't hold back my laughter, and eventually she joined in, and then spilled the beans on another writer's dark side. Do you know Katie Collie? The children's writer, Little Miss Goody Two-Shoes? Yes, that's her. After she takes the pill, she goes to a bar and sleeps with every guy she meets. That's her dark side. I howled with laughter. The small, deep-voiced man at the pizza parlor was correct. Everyone has a different dark side. After we calmed down, Abby turned the question around to me. What about you? What's your dark side? I grinned. Nothing I can't live with. Most of my books are now available as audiobooks. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash audiobooks. Happy 
Hollow. The town of Happy Hollow is a quaint, charming little town, bustling with vintage homes that surround a classic old-fashioned town square. With the recent snow, it had the appearance of a Christmas card. There are several farm-to-table type restaurants throughout the town since it's located within a heavily populated farming community. In the center of the town is a grand theater that gets some well-known acts on occasion. The popular 80s band Wang Chung played a show out there just a few weeks ago. The town is also home to several museums. The local railroad museum is my favorite, but the most popular venue in town is the Traveling Art Gallery. It's located in a building that used to be an opera house back in the 1940s. It's a vast structure and every month they present a gigantic new art exhibit. This month the gallery was hosting a traveling dinosaur fossil show. My 10-year-old daughter was fascinated with dinosaurs. She wanted to be a paleontologist when she grew up, so my wife and I were thrilled to make her day by taking her to the exhibit. While standing in line outside, I noticed an Amish man standing a few feet away. This wasn't unusual. There was a sizable Amish community in the area. What was odd was that he was just standing there motionless, staring at the people in line. And there was something bizarre about his eyes. They were frosted over as if thick with cataracts, and his skin was ghostly white. Was he ill? Was he in need of assistance? Those were the thoughts running through my mind as his head quickly snapped around and he locked eyes with me. His gaze was menacing, maniacal. I swear his lips started curling up into a snarl. I was relieved when we finally got to the ticket window. I quickly purchased our tickets and ushered my wife and daughter into the building. Just before entering, I took a quick look over my shoulder at the Amish man. His cold eyes were still affixed on me. I felt a shiver run down my spine when he took a lethargic step toward me and I hurried into the building. I quickly forgot all about the creepy Amish man as we traveled down the various aisles exhibiting some of the most impressive dinosaur bones I had ever seen. The center of the exhibit housed a gigantic, full skeleton of a Triceratops. My daughter Carol was beaming with excitement. She was dashing from fossil to fossil. She'd rush to one, stop, take a hefty moment to take it all in, and then race to the next one. My wife Lori and I were almost enjoying the display as much as my daughter. I couldn't believe how well displayed all the fossils were. Full skeletons were posed in natural positions that at times made me feel like I was walking through a prehistoric zoo. Our pleasant afternoon was abruptly halted by a shriek of fear and pain. I gazed toward the ruckus to see the strange Amish man. He had entered the building and was in a tussle with a female security guard. I watched on in horror as the Amish man grabbed the security guard and bit her, ripping a mouthful of flesh from her arm. As more security guards rushed over to restrain the attacker, several people burst through the entrance of the gallery. 
the people varied greatly. There was an old man in a nice suit, a tall, bearded man in a puffy coat, a woman in a sweater and a knit hat, and a young boy wearing a baseball hat. One thing these people all had in common was that they were deathly pale and had frosty eyes just like the Amish man. They too held snarled expressions and immediately went on the attack chasing after any normal person they saw. I stood in shock for a moment and then realized I needed to get my wife and daughter to safety. We rushed toward the nearest exit door. Just as I reached for the knob, the door burst open and a policeman bolted in. He was in a total panic as he grabbed me by the shirt and screamed, They're everywhere! They're everywhere! Who is? His eyes widened with fear as he shouted, Zombies! The officer let go of me and ran off into one of the rooms of the gallery. I had to see what was happening for myself. I opened the exit door and stepped outside. My jaw dropped at the terrifying sight before me. The quaint, charming town of Happy Hollow had been transformed into a war zone. An orchestra of blaring horns, screeching tires, and horrifying screams filled the air. Large swaths of the once virgin snow had been sprayed with blood. People were running up and down the streets, fleeing from the chase of the icy-eyed, sickly people who had turned into savage, bloodthirsty beasts. I eyed potential escape routes, but all the roads I could see were congested with carnage. There was no escaping Happy Hollow, other than by foot, and the zombies were all over the place. There was no way out. I felt our chances were better inside the dinosaur exhibit. We re-entered the chaos within the building. Countless people were now lying dead on the gallery floor. Several of the ravenous creatures were stooped over the bodies, tearing chunks of flesh from them with their teeth. The survivors within the gallery were in a full-blown panic, running up and down the aisles without rhyme or reason. Their constant screaming was inadvertently drawing the attention of the zombies that weren't currently occupied in a feeding frenzy. We needed to get somewhere the zombies couldn't easily reach us. That's when my eyes zeroed in on the Triceratops skeleton. That rack of bones had to be at least ten feet tall, and the crest at the base of the dinosaur's skull would be the perfect place to sit. I grabbed my wife and daughter by the hands and we sprinted toward the enormous skeleton. We managed to dodge our way through an obstacle course of slaughter and reach the mighty beast's fossilized skeleton. I immediately hoisted my daughter onto my shoulders and gave her a push to safety atop the Triceratops' colossal body. I tried to do the same with my wife, but I couldn't push her high enough for her to get a grip on the bones. And my wife wasn't athletic. She couldn't climb up herself without someone being able to pull her up. Evidently, that realization became clear to her before it did me. Climb up there and then pull me up. I tried to argue with her that there was no way I was leaving her behind, but she insisted that was the only way we were all going to be able to get up there, and rather than waste valuable seconds debating, I gave in and did as she commanded. 
The climb up the Triceratops' hulking frame was not easy. The bones were thick and hard to grip, but I managed to tap into my depleting energy resources and scale up to the top of the skeleton. As I positioned myself to reach down and grab my wife's arm, I caught a glimpse of something that made me break out in goosebumps. It was the Amish man that I had seen outside while waiting in line. His eyes were locked on me, and he let out the most hideous wail as he staggered forward toward me in a ferocious fashion. I looked down at my wife and held out my arm. Grab onto my wrist! Hurry! There was some distance between my arm and my wife. She was going to have to jump higher than I knew she was capable in order to reach me. Jump, Lori! Jump! She tried over and over, but wasn't getting close. I began to panic. Jump! Jump higher! Jump! I eyed the wailing Amish zombie who was zooming toward us and had caught the attention of the other zombies who were now joining behind him and scurrying toward us. Lori had one more chance before they reached her. I stared at her intently. She was out of breath and covered in perspiration. I could see she didn't have anything left, so I urged her on one more time, hoping that a surge of adrenaline would flow through her. Give me everything you've got, Lori. Jump. Jump now! She leapt into the air, and I felt her sweaty hand grip around my wrist. You did it! As I yanked her toward me, her slippery hand lost its grip on my arm, and she plummeted down into the wriggling mass of zombies. I screamed out and then held my daughter in my arms, pressing her face against my chest to prevent her from having to witness the zombies tearing her mother's abdomen open and playing a sick, twisted game of tug-of-war with her intestines. Night has fallen. The electricity went out about an hour ago. We now sit in darkness atop the massive prehistoric beast's remnants. We can still hear the hissing and howls of the zombies below us. While my hope was that they might go away and give us a chance to escape, the reality is that, with each passing moment, the gargled growls below intensify as the horde of zombies grows. I'm afraid our future looks bleak. Here's a super fun way to support the show. Go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store and buy some Maniac on the Loose merchandise. Let the world know you're a listener. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, there's a bunch of items to choose from. And you have a multitude of design choices, including all of my book covers. Go take a look. It's super cool. Go on. Do it. Right now. Go. ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store There's something behind the wall New owner I'm recently divorced My husband got the house I got the savings and our dog. With the money, 
I bought a nice house in what seemed to be a peaceful neighborhood. The majority of the houses in the neighborhood were similar to mine. Two-story brick colonials built in the 1920s, but they were all well-kept and modernized. My dog's name is Jasper. He's a very protective rat terrier. Jasper was immediately taken with the basement. It's a full basement with concrete floors and walls. It was partially finished. Apparently, one of the previous owners had intended to turn it into a library as there were floor-to-ceiling bookshelves against a couple of the walls. I just planned on using the basement for storage. Being that I was still settling in, I was in the basement a lot as I brought items down that I determined I wouldn't be using in the near future. Every time I opened that basement door, Jasper would race down the stairs and run to one of the walls that was lined with a bookcase and bark. My fear was that I had mice, or worse yet, rats. But in the short time I had been in the house, I had seen no evidence of rodents around the food areas in the kitchen as one would expect if they had such a problem. This became a regular thing for Jasper. He teared down the basement stairs and sit in front of that one particular wall and bark at it. He'd do that for hours if I let him. A couple times late at night when I was fast asleep, Jasper woke me up barking at the wall in the bedroom. He'd sit at the foot of the bed, stare at the wall, and bark. The same thing happened in the bathroom once. I had just gotten home from a hard day at work and decided to take a nice hot bubble bath. I had actually started to doze off when I heard Jasper start barking. Again, he was staring at the wall as he yipped. I was starting to get concerned. What was it about the walls that had Jasper so agitated? One day, while I was organizing some boxes in the basement, Jasper had another barking fit. As usual, he was staring at one particular bookcase-covered wall. But this time he wasn't just sitting there barking, he was digging at the center of the wall, as if there was something behind it. I was about to inspect it closer when I heard a knock on the front door. It was my next-door neighbor. I had seen him tending to his magnificent flower garden a time or two, but we had not officially met. He was a portly gentleman in the late 60s. His thick rose-framed glasses didn't go well with his khaki bucket hat, colorful Bermuda shorts, and tan Crocs. He held a constant sour expression and introduced himself as Hubert. I smiled cheerfully and told him it was nice to meet him, but he interrupted me by holding up his hand. You can dispense with the pleasantries, miss. First, let's discuss your lawn. I was confused. My lawn looked fantastic. It was just mowed the previous day. I told him as such, but he wasn't satisfied. Yes, I saw your lawn, boy. And after he completed the job, I measured the height of your lawn. It's approximately three quarters of an inch higher than mine. In the future, please advise your worker to use a lower cut setting. I was at a loss for words. I couldn't believe the nerve of this man, but he wasn't through. Next, let's talk about your tree. He pointed up to the 60-foot maple tree that was the centerpiece of my front yard. 
That's your tree, not mine. The leaves on this tree are yours, not mine. Thus, if I find any leaves in my yard, I expect you to rake them up. Am I clear? Before I could respond to his inappropriate demand, he moved on to another subject, Jasper. And about your dog. I can hear him barking at all hours. I expect you to get control of that. You know, the previous owners had a dog. He barked a lot too, at first, and then he died rather suddenly. A sly smile broke through his sour expression. It would be a shame if something happened to your little dog. I was appalled and furious. Did you just threaten to kill my dog if he doesn't stop barking? I did nothing of the sort. I simply informed you as to the unfortunate demise of the previous homeowner's annoying pet. Good day. And with that, my jerk of a next-door neighbor marched back to his property. That night I was awakened by the distant barks of Jasper. The barking was coming from the basement, which was strange as one of the last things I do each night before I go upstairs to bed is tug on the basement door to make sure it's shut. On this night, my routine was no different. To my shock, the basement door was slightly ajar. I slowly made my way down the long flight of stairs to the basement toward the angry yaps of Jasper and found him barking and digging at the bookcase. What was behind that wall that always had Jasper so enraged? It was time to find out. I ran my hand over the edges of the bookcase. It was sturdy and well built, but when I grabbed hold of one of the shelves and shook it, the bookcase seemed to give slightly on the right side, as though it had just moved backwards a little bit. I gave it a hefty push and it rocked backwards again. Finally, I put all my weight behind it and shoved it with all of my might, and to my amazement, the bookcase spun open. It was a false wall, and beyond it was a tunnel. It was a vast stone tunnel that was so long it disappeared into the darkness. As I contemplated my next move, Jasper darted down the tunnel and out of my sight. Jasper! My little companion had made the choice for me. I had to go after him. So I entered the eerie tunnel and began walking. The tunnel was dimly lit by a string of small lights that were fastened to the tunnel ceiling. The subtle scent of mildew draped the air. I expected the tunnel to be chilly, but it was surprisingly comfortable in temperature. I came to a ladder propped up against the tunnel wall. I looked up and could see that it led to a second and third level. I climbed up it to find a wall with various small holes cut into it. I put my eye against one of the holes and found myself staring into my living room. I climbed to the third tier of the tunnel and found holes that spied into my bedroom and bathroom. Someone had been p 
keeping on me. Jasper's barks were growing more distant, so I hurried back down to the main tunnel corridor and started following his barks. I came to an abrupt halt when I passed by a room. It was a small room. There was a table against one wall stacked with novels. A small burning candle sat on a nightstand which was positioned next to a dirty, twin-sized bed. A wrinkled blanket and puffy pillow sat atop the bed, as did a freshly opened bag of potato chips and a hatchet. I stepped forward for a closer look and gasped when I saw the glistening of fresh blood covering the hatchet blade. That's when I noticed the blood trail leading out of the room and down the tunnel into the darkness. I didn't want to go any farther. I bent down and emphatically called for Jasper. When I did, he stopped barking and a few seconds later, I could hear the click of his nails on the tunnel's cement floor. Jasper greeted me with a multitude of vigorous licks to my face. I quickly gathered him up hurried out of the tunnel and called the police. There's something behind the wall, Gunther. Most houses in this neighborhood had coal furnaces at one point. Tunnels were built with rails to easily move coal to the furnaces back in the day. In the 1920s, bootleggers utilized the tunnels to transport and hide booze. Nobody is aware that the tunnels exist anymore, except for me. My name is Gunther. The tunnels are my home. When I was a young boy, I lived at 313 Madison Street with my parents. My father knew about the tunnels. He showed them to me. He said if the police ever came to take me away that I should run to the tunnels and hide. Why would the police want to take me away? Because I hurt little girls. I didn't want to. All I wanted to do was touch their fine soft flesh and to bury my nose in their bountiful hair and smell their sweet fragrance. I wanted to explore their bodies with my hands. Girls didn't like when I did any of those things. They screamed and hit me, so I'd scream and hit them back. People referred to me as psychotic, even doctors. They said I wasn't normal. I learned that it was best if I stayed away from girls and admired them from a distance. I was still a boy when my parents were killed in a car crash. I overheard people saying that they were going to put me away in a mental hospital, so I ran to the tunnels to hide, and I never left. The tunnels run underneath every house in the neighborhood. Every house has a wall in the basement that opens and leads into the tunnels. Over the years, I mastered the tunnels and how to utilize them. I can come and go into any house in the neighborhood as I please. I set up a series of peepholes so I can watch them all and learn their routines. I know when they are home and when they're away. And when they're away, Gunther plays. I eat their food, 
watch their television, lay in their beds, and they never even know. And the women, mm, the women. I watch them from the protection of my tunnels. I watch them sleep. I watch them change. I watch them bathe. The biggest problem I encounter is when one of the families gets a dog. If the dog is fat, lazy, and friendly, it's not a problem. But yipping watchdogs are. They know when I'm behind the walls and they bark. Those are the dogs that I poison. A new woman had moved into the house at 459 Monroe Avenue. She had a yippy dog that was on to me. Every time I looked into the wall, that dog knew and barked. It had to be dealt with. I waited until the middle of the night. The dog slept in the bed with the woman. If I were quiet enough, I'd be able to sneak into her kitchen, poison the dog's food dish, and get back into my tunnel without being noticed. That was the plan, anyway. I entered the woman's basement, climbed the stairs, and opened the basement door. The door creaked just a little bit, but not enough for anyone to hear. Except for that dog. That little annoying thing came tearing down the hall, barking at me. I turned and fled down the stairs to the basement. I just made it to the tunnel before it caught up to me. I'd have to wait for another day. I laid down on my bed and opened a bag of potato chips that I had taken from a different house earlier that day. As I munched away, I could hear the little dog barking at the secret wall in the basement. Surely the woman would wonder why the basement door was open. I had my fingers crossed that wouldn't cause her to start investigating around. It was then that I was shocked to see a man standing in my doorway. He was a young man in his thirties, athletically built. He was in jeans and a t-shirt. By his expression, he was as shocked to see me as I was to see him. I didn't know who this intruder was, but I knew he must die. Nobody could know about my secret tunnels. I grabbed my hatchet from the nightstand and charged. There's something behind the wall. Neighbor across the street. I finally talked my wife into letting me turn the basement into the most momentous man cave of all time. Big screen TV, surround sound speakers, refrigerator, pool table, card table, a bar, tavern decorations, and anything else I could think of. It was dumb luck that I found the tunnel. The wall was made of a huge bookcase. It looked cool, but that's where I wanted to put my TV, so I took a sledgehammer to it. I knew the wall behind it was concrete, so there wouldn't be much risk of harming the foundation. But a funny thing happened. One of my swings hit a soft spot in the back of the bookcase and dented it in. You can't dent concrete, so I knew something was up. I started pounding away at the bookcase even more, and suddenly the thing spun open. I couldn't believe it. Then I saw it. The tunnel. I discovered some kind of ancient tunnel system. I walked all around it. I traveled under the entire neighborhood and shockingly, 
There were secret doors to every single house, and the back of the doors were labeled with the addresses of the houses. What was this place? As I meandered down one of the many tunnels down there, I stopped when I found myself in the doorway of a room. An occupied room. There was a tall man with stringy white hair laying on the bed. He was dressed in dingy coveralls. He was clearly undernourished, scrawny, and very pale. I guessed him to be in his late 60s. He jumped from the bed and faced me. His light blue eyes were filled with confusion and then rage as he picked up a hatchet and let out a battle cry while charging me. I wanted to run, but he caught up with me before I had the chance. Lucky for me, I caught his wrist as he brought the hatchet down or he would have buried it in my chest. We wrestled around on the ground for a bit and somehow I managed to gain the advantage and get on top of him. He was flailing around with that hatchet, and it's a damn miracle that he never connected with it. In a flash, I pulled the hatchet from his hand. He was still slapping and punching at me. I just meant to hit him with the side of the hatchet to subdue him. But the hatchet slipped in my hand as I brought it down, and the blade of the hatchet crunched into his face. He was obviously dead. I pulled the hatchet from his skull and threw it on his bed. I then began pulling the body down the tunnel. What I was going to do with it, I had no idea. That's when I saw another secret door open at the end of the tunnel. I pulled the dead body around a corner and peeked out as I watched the woman who I recognized as my new neighbor across the street from me. Her dog caught up to me and started barking. I tried to reach out and pet him, but he snapped at me. I was in trouble. When the woman saw the bloody hatchet and the blood trail, she'd call the cops. What was I going to do? I heard the woman call the dog. Luckily, he went to her and they both exited the tunnel. I took a few minutes to collect myself and devise a plan. The police were going to find the bloody hatchet and follow the blood trail to wherever I pulled this body to, so I couldn't bring it back to my house. I had to leave it somewhere in the tunnel far away from my secret door entrance. The problem was, whoever's secret door was closest to the dead body would be the prime suspect, and I couldn't do that to any of my neighbors. They were all good people. Well, except for Hubert. He was the jerk who lived across the street from me. He'd call the police if my kids played a little too loud in our yard. Once, my kids were playing catch with a big bouncy ball. They accidentally kicked it into Hubert's yard. He picked it up and popped it with a pair of garden shears. Once, I parked my car down the street because I had relatives staying for the week and wanted them to use the driveway. Hubert called and reported my car as an abandoned vehicle. Sometimes I'd be out in the yard and I'd look across the street to find Hubert watching me with binoculars. When he'd spot me, he'd point to his eyes and then point to me, letting me know that he was watching me. I mean, who does that? I used to have a dog. If I ever let him out without a leash, Hubert would call animal control. That dog died unexpectedly. I always suspected that Hubert may have poisoned him. I drug the dead body to Hubert's secret door and even went a step further. I pushed Hubert's secret door open 
and pulled the dead body halfway in. <laughs> Try explaining that one, Hubert. If you like what you're hearing, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. Just go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash support. That's ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash support. Santa. I've been pudgy all my life. My hair turned frosty white while I was still a teenager. I'm the type of guy who would have to shave twice a day to avoid constant scruff. But since I hate shaving, I just grew a beard. And yes, my beard is as white as my hair. I have a naturally deep voice and a bellowing laugh. By the time I was 20 years old, everyone called me Santa. I can't tell you how often people walk by me on the street and holler out, Ho, ho, ho! What I once thought of as a curse turned out to be a blessing. I was about 25 when I embraced my Santa-like qualities and started working for the malls throughout December. My first year, I pulled in almost 10,000 bucks. Here's another important side note about me. I love kids. I always have. Their laughter, their joy, their playfulness, their love. They're so innocent and pure, not having yet been corrupted by life. Their endless curiosities are a constant reminder to me to stop and smell the roses. In a world that gets more standoffish by the year, Kids are never shy about giving great big genuine hugs. They are flat out entertaining. One might think that sitting in a chair playing Santa would get old quick, but not for me. Talking to little kids and hearing their innermost desires is a joy and gazing out and watching their antics while waiting impatiently to sit on my lap is better than any television show I'm aware of. But the best part of having such a Santa Claus-like appearance is watching the kids as their little jubilant faces light up when they see me. I quickly learned that there are more opportunities for people playing Santa Claus than just sitting at them all listening to what adorable children want for Christmas. I hooked up with a photography company that pays me to pose with children and entire families as Santa Claus. This is a huge moneymaker for me. Once word got out about my services, I started getting booked for corporate events, private events, and parades. It used to be that I only made money playing Santa from the day after Thanksgiving to the day after Christmas, but that's not the case anymore. I now have a talent agent who books appearances for me year-round. I do movies, TV shows, commercials, and countless other events. I'm a proud graduate of Santa School. 
During the off-season, I spend my time teaching other prospective Santas how to do the job and do it well. The latest Christmas season had been my busiest yet. I had been working non-stop, only allowing myself enough spare time to have an ample breakfast, a hefty dinner, and a solid night's sleep. I was hired to work a full Saturday at an orphanage located on the outskirts of Nashville, Tennessee. When I arrived, my jaw dropped at the imposing structure. It was a sweeping five-story fortress. The various curved and pointed tower rooflines made the dwelling feel more like a castle than an orphanage. I don't know how old the building was, but it looked ancient to me. The brick building was severely weathered, and the wooden window frames appeared rotten and uneven. The orphanage was covered in dried vines, which I imagine in the spring and summer brought a lush, lively appearance to the building but in December, just added to the cold, lonely atmosphere of the orphanage. I was met by a spindly man in his fifties. He wore a plain dark suit and wired frame glasses. His hair was neatly slicked back and he introduced himself as Mr. Turkle. Mr. Turkle led me down a dark, dreary corridor to a big empty room that I assumed was a cafeteria at one time. At the end of the room sat a massive throne. A long, narrow, red carpet had been rolled through the room leading to the foot of the throne. Mr. Turkle instructed me to sit on the throne and explain that they would lead the children in to sit on my lap and tell me what they wanted for Christmas. Every child they brought in looked malnourished and was dressed in a drab, gray uniform that appeared to have been designed in the 1920s. It was a sad sight, but the children beamed when they saw me, and that warmed my heart. For some of these kids, I would be the highlight of their year, and with that came the responsibility of putting on the best Santa act I had ever achieved. The day started out grand. The kids rattled off lists of items they wanted for Christmas. As a Santa Claus, I learned a long time ago never to promise kids that they would get what they wished for. I'd simply assure them that I would do my best for them. Some of the kids asked for puppies or kittens. Knowing that these orphans wouldn't be allowed pets within the orphanage, I'd explain to them that my sleigh was far too cold to carry puppies and kittens on, but that I'd bring them something else that I knew they'd enjoy. The most difficult part of my day was when an orphan child would ask me when they would have parents. I got choked up a few times, but would tell them to be patient and that Santa was looking for the best parents he could find for them. We were halfway through the day when a sickly pale girl with long stringy hair sat on my lap. Unlike the other children, she wasn't happy to see me. She held a blank expression and seemed weak and lethargic. Turns out the child was quite ill. I found out the hard way when she vomited all over my Santa jacket. The vomit in question was thick, sticky, and putrid. This was not a situation where a little soap and water would do the job. My Santa jacket was going to need some deep cleaning. Fortunately, 
I always keep a spare costume in my vehicle. I told Mr. Turkle that we'd have to take a break while I changed, but he was having none of it as he spoke to me in a stern voice. We're not paying you to take breaks. There are a lot of children waiting to see you, and we don't have time for you to meander out to your car to change. Luckily, we have a Santa jacket available for you to use in the next room. I'm very particular about what kind of Santa outfit I wear. Mine are custom-made and top-of-the-line. I was not comfortable with changing into some cheap, flimsy, dime-store knockoff. When Mr. Turkle presented the Santa jacket to me, I was astounded. It was magnificent. I could tell by the material that it was an antique that had not been used much, if ever. It was an energetic red with plush velvet. The lavish white fur felt like authentic animal fur. I put the jacket on and initially felt it to be a tad large, but after moving around for a few seconds, it seemed to fit perfectly. It was almost as though the suit had conformed to my body. Where did you get this thing? We found it in the basement. I looked at the pristine condition of the jacket. There was no way that this had been laying around in some gloomy basement for years. That's when Mr. Turkle explained that the jacket was found in a box. The box was hidden under the stairs and was chained shut. The words, do not open, were stenciled on the sides of the box, which intrigued us. You can imagine our disappointment when we opened it only to find this Santa jacket. This was the only thing in the box? Mr. Turkle nodded and insisted that I get back to my Santa Claus duties. I didn't have time to ponder as to why a Santa jacket would be chained up in a box with the words, do not open on it. I had countless kids to cheer up. The first child that sat in my lap after I donned the new Santa jacket was a homely boy with a bowl haircut. What do you want for Christmas, little boy? A toy car. Have you been a good boy all year? The boy nodded and then I spewed out some words I couldn't believe. I don't believe you. You're a bad little boy and you will get nothing for Christmas. Tears streamed down from the little boy's eyes as I pushed him off my lap. What had I just said? I should have felt awful. I should have been ashamed and ridden with guilt, but I wasn't. I didn't feel bad about it at all. It brought me joy. With that, it was time to welcome the next little vagrant. This one was a disgusting little girl with a runny nose. She smelled of stale urine. She was holding a filthy old rag doll. What do you want, you ugly little thing? A new dolly. This one is old. You don't deserve a new dolly, you little bitch. As a matter of fact, I grabbed the old rag doll from her hands and ripped its head off. You don't deserve this one either. I tossed the destroyed doll to the ground and shoved the little girl off my lap. She fell to the ground with a thud and started bawling in pain. Within seconds, another unattractive girl was on my lap. Horrid little thing would likely grow up to be a thieving whore. What do you want for Christmas, you little brat? She looked up at me with puppy dog eyes. 
This morning I would have been saddened by the sight, but now I saw nothing but a disgusting, pathetic leech begging like a bum. Her words appalled me. I want a new mommy and daddy. You'll never get another mommy and daddy. Nobody wants you. I then leaned over and whispered into the little wench's ear. If you ever do get a new mommy and daddy, Santa is going to come to your house late one Christmas Eve and chop their heads off. I picked up the little hussy, tossed her off of me, and stood up on my throne to address the rest of the dregs that were waiting to see Santa Claus. You're all losers. You're all scum. There's a reason you have no parents, because they didn't love you. Nobody will ever love you because you're all evil children. You all deserve to die. That is enough. Mr. Turkle began stepping toward me in a stern manner. Take one more step toward me and I'll snap your little skinny neck like a twig. Mr. Turkle stopped in his tracks and stared at me in shock. I gazed out over the hordes of crying children that stood before me and found myself overwhelmed with delight. It was a beautiful sight to behold. Ah, if only I could bury them all in the ground neck deep and run a power mower over their heads. As these thoughts raced through my mind, I found myself caressing the suit I was covered in. I noticed a subtle emerald glow manifesting around me. The jacket was magical. It was wondrous. It was majestic. It's the suit! I turned to see the sniveling, scrawny Mr. Turkle running toward me, shouting, It's the suit! It's the suit! He slammed into me, knocking me from my prestigious throne. I lost my bearings for a moment, but once I collected myself, I was going to kill him. I would rip his head off like I did that rag doll. I'd hold it up high and laugh while displaying the blood-dripping head to the children, thus making them scream in terror. Suddenly I felt Mr. Turkle ripping the jacket from my body. That glorious jacket! It was mine! It was mine! It was mine! For a moment everything was dark and quiet, and then all I heard was the sobbing within the room. I looked up to see the saddened eyes of the children and the lanky Mr. Turkle hurling the Santa jacket to the ground. I began rubbing my head. What happened? Mr. Turkle described to me the events that unfolded while I donned the evil Santa Claus jacket. I remembered it all, not as a participant, but as an observer. Mr. Turkle and I agreed that the Santa jacket must be destroyed. We tried shredding it, but the material was too tough. We doused it in gasoline and attempted to burn it, but the gas rolled off the jacket like water off a duck's back, and the flame would extinguish the moment it touched the material. The jacket was indestructible. In the end, we placed the jacket back into the box from which it came, bolted it up, and slid it into the deepest, darkest corner that existed under the basement stairs. I enclosed a note with the jacket which read, Do not put on this jacket. It is evil. 
I spent the weekend with the kids at the orphanage trying my best to undo the possible lifelong harm I may have caused. I bought the little boy who asked for the toy car the best remote-controlled car I could find at the nearest store. The little girl who requested a new doll got exactly what she asked for, courtesy of old Santa here. And as for the little girl who asked for a new mommy and daddy, I adopted her. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. From the mind of a maniac. Eight horror stories that are interconnected either significantly or slightly and are all bundled into one gigantic collection. That's right. You get eight books for the price of one. Maniac on the Loose. The Nine Lives of Ski Mask. The Craving. The Caretakers. It Lives in the Attic. Goat Sucker, Spirit Stalkers, Hell is Full. All eight books for the price of one. Go to Amazon and search for From the Mind of a Maniac or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books.